Hello, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Wednesday, December 20th, 2023. I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at TPI, and I'm joined by my colleague, Scott Walston, TPI's President and Senior Fellow. Today, we're delighted to have as our guest, Joan of Sarah, who has just come out with a timely and important new book, co-authored with Bethany McLean. The book is called The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind. Joe has had a wide-ranging and distinguished journalism career. He's written for Esquire, GQ, Fortune, The New York Times, and Bloomberg, among others, and has written books on sports, the financial crisis, and other subjects, and now the COVID pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Um, thanks very much, Tom. Glad to be here. So what made you and Bethany decide to write uh, this book? We like to take on challenges that we can't possibly <laughs> win. Now, we had written a book about the financial crisis together back in 2008 called All the Devils Are Here. came out in 2010, actually. And we've been kind of looking around for something that was big enough and meaty enough for us to dive into. And when COVID arrived, it just seemed obvious that it was something we were going to write about. And uh, we were primarily focused in the beginning about what it might do to the economy. But the more we got into it, the more we decided and the more we came to certain decisions, certain conclusions about the way the country was, the way the public health officials and the federal government and state governments were handling COVID, we decided that that was a really... Uh, important subject for us to tackle in in a dispassionate, nonpartisan way. And so that became uh, probably at least half, if not two-thirds of the book. Yeah, well, this is certainly a big and meaty enough subject. And uh, as you kind of indicated, your book is really kind of a, a scathing, kind of across-the-board indictment of uh, how this country handled the pandemic. Uh, virtually every institution involved comes in for some sort of criticism, sometimes very severe, including, as you indicated, the public health establishment, the CDC and the NIH, teachers unions, the Federal Reserve, private equity companies, globalization, and that elusive entity, the elite consensus. <laughs> there's, 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 one, there's one kind of exception to uh, the entities that come in for criticism, which is which is uh, Operation Warp Speed, the uh, right the, so, uh, uh, the conservatives who love what I have to say, what Bethany and I have to say about lockdowns, hate what we have to say about vaccines and Operation Warp Speed. So, so yeah, so, it's a good balance. But given the given given, I'm kind of curious. Given the fact, quite frankly, I mean, I've written a few things on this subject, so I I agree with most of what you had to say have to say in the book. But given the the fact that virtually everyone comes in for some sort of criticism. How how has the book been received? Well, um, it hasn't it hasn't done that well in the marketplace. There have been two issues. I mean, the first is that um, people don't really want to deal with COVID at this point. Uh, I, thank God you didn't say it, but so many interviewers have begun the interview by saying, "Folks, I know you're sick of talking about COVID, but there's this book out." It's like, thanks, fella. But you know the other right, the other point is that um, we've gotten caught in the par partisan squabbles. Um, uh, you know, I think the liberal folks really don't like what we have to say about school closings and 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 lockdowns. And 
we haven't had a lot. We've had very few reviews in the big time mainstream press. Yeah, I've noticed that. Which is surprising given that Bethany and I have both been, you know, part of that world for, you know, 30 plus years. I don't I don't even I don't even know what to think about that. But um, you know, I think it's a book, if I may pat myself on the back, I think it's a book that's gonna stand the test of time. And I think that uh, I, the fact that it's a short-term financial disappointment is just something I have to uh, kind of get past. Yeah, but also, aside from, I mean, I, you, you say you don't really know what to think about the fact that it hasn't been reviewed and, you know, some of the major publications. It, it seems a little obvious what to think about that. It's, it's... I'm trying not to be conspiracy-minded. Right, right, right. <laughs> So doing my best, man. Don't, 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 don't draw me in. Don't draw me in. Well, kind of along those lines, and it's really, it's really just, I mean, it's in the sense it's a question that answers itself, you know, but why, why is there virtually no interest in, in doing an overall assessment, you know, some sort of commission or something, you know, some would seem to me, this is a subject that is ripe for some national commission. I mean, obviously, yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I remember, and I don't remember personally, but you know, there was uh, congressional hearings after um, after the crash of 1929 led to the led to the formation of the SEC uh, and and the Glass-Steagall Act that separated banks from investment banks. The Challenger uh, Commission uh, helped improve safety at NASA. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the Post Financial Crisis Commission, although I know that not everybody agrees with that, but uh, I think they did a lot of good in terms of explaining what happened and why and and how to prevent another one. So here we are now with with, with what ought to be an incredibly obvious need to look back and take stock. And I think one reason is that there's so much partisanship around what happened during COVID that if you had a commission that was evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, you would wind up instead of a sober-minded assessment of, for instance, Damask work, you would get instead a big fight between the progressive end and the right-wing end, one side saying, of course, everybody should have a mask, and the other side saying, oh, you're an idiot, they don't work. Even, even it's, you can go right down the line on that. I mean, I think the only thing where there's any consensus is School closings, I think uh, liberals now understand that that was a mistake, although there's, you know, you find plenty of people who defend them, starting with the teachers union. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, you see plenty of articles now about the costs of the school closings and the kids that have been lost, increased inequality driven by that. But it doesn't seem like they've taken the next step to ask, you know, how could we have balanced that with? Right. Um, they, they don't say this was a mistake. Right. They say this is terrible what happened. We need to see how we can get these kids, you know, back up on their feet. And what it was, I've been saying this consistently, that anything anybody did in March, April, even May of 2020 is forgivable. Pandemic plans that the government had put together since 2007 were all aimed at influenza because influenza was what hit us in 1918 and then in 1958 and then in the late 1960s, you know, we didn't know that the coronavirus would act so differently. Influenza killed kids, it killed, killed kid, people in their 20s, it killed people in their 50s, it killed people in their 80s. COVID didn't work that way. COVID killed 
you know, tons of people over the age of 70 or 75, and it killed very, very, very few kids under the age of 15. And uh, it took a while to figure out that that's what was going on. But at a certain point, we did have it figured out. There was study after study after study, countries all over the world, where time after time, they were showing that for whatever reason, schools were the safest place you could possibly be. Certainly safer than being in a multi-generational household. And, uh, and yet, uh, partly the flaw, the fault of public health, and partly the obstinacy of the teachers union, you know, you get to September, October, November, January 2021, February, and these big city schools are still mostly closed down, even though suburban schools and private schools are mostly open. And, you know, let's just be honest, the teachers unions are by and large democratic. Uh, they claim to care about the disadvantaged. They claim to be that anyone who says kids should go back to school are racist. That was their claim. And yet, you know, the damage that they did to the disadvantaged is incalculable. Uh, we have in the book one statistic that, that you say what you want about how kids are coming back who are back in school. Three million kids dropped out of the school system and haven't been seen since. Yeah. I mean, the absentee rate in New York City went up from like 20% to 45%. On a daily basis, on a daily daily basis, I yeah. put my own kid. My own kid was a public school kid, which I was very happy about, up through fourth grade, and then I switched him to private school because I knew that even if the schools were open in September 2020, which they weren't, it was going to be a shitstorm. The kids were just going to be relearning what they learned in fourth grade because remote learning was such a disaster. I mean, my own kid's case—you saw it firsthand. The teacher. The teacher had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. How was she supposed to do six hours of lessons? It was absurd. So she'd be with them for a half an hour. She'd give them basically three hours of homework, and that would be the school day. And I knew that if he went back to the public school, if it was open, which it wasn't, um, they would be relearning most of what they did in the fourth grade instead of moving on to fifth grade. So I was like, we're out of here. And a lot of parents who have my kind of means did the same thing. So along with everything else, School closings just exacerbated inequality in America, which is also already terrible. Well, you know, you know one, one, I think you've kind of alluded to this already, but one, uh, one comment I get when I, when I talk about these things with, you know, friends and family and is, well, they did the best that they could with what they knew at the time. But that's really not true. Not I mean, even close to being true. Let me give you a simple, silly example. Rachel Walensky as a private as a private epidemiologist in Boston gets an email from the city the school department of Newton Massachusetts the you know which is as you know the most upscale suburban town uh, in Massachusetts right outside of Boston and they say to her does is 6 feet really necessary in terms of social distancing or can we live with 3 feet and she writes back to them and she basically says 3 feet's just fine Three feet's enough. X months later, I don't know how much later it was, but, you know, five or six months later, she becomes the head of the CDC. Does she say three feet is fine? No, she does not. Now it's six feet, six feet, six feet, six feet, six feet. She knows better. She absolutely knows better. And, you know, another classic example is that uh, the CDC and the public health officials around the country never 
really told the citizens about the enormous disparity between elderly death and children's death. So if you're a parent, you're, you're, you're scared that your kid's going to get COVID and go to the hospital and maybe die. And you don't realize that the chances of that happening is minuscule. Did some kids die? Yes, some kids died. But, you know, there are states in this country where the majority of deaths took place in nursing homes. The majority of deaths. New Hampshire is a classic, but there's a bunch of them. So, um, you know, that's an important distinction that was never really spelled out. And if it had been spelled out and if public health had been encouraging people to reopen the schools and get back kids back into school, we might have had a different outcome in terms of schools. So what's your what's your theory as to why it became like this? I mean, we've just been talking about faults of of sort of more liberal leaning institutions. But like you said earlier, uh, conservatives don't like Operation Warp Speed, which is crazy because it should have been seen as one of the biggest successes ever. Why did things turn out that way? Why did teachers unions behave the way that they did? Well, uh, one reason was because of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, what's her name? Rand Weingarten, Randy Weingarten. You know, when Trump came out and said, uh, we need to open the schools, She's, she basically was on record saying, well, if Trump says we need to open the schools, well, that means obviously we, we shouldn't open the schools because he's, you know, he's wrong about everything. He's so terrible. It was really, I mean, so think about what happened in Florida earlier. Uh, Ron DeSantis reopens the beaches and Twitter all of a sudden has all these photographs of people at the beach and none of them have masks. And, you know, we know now the beach is pretty damn safe. You're outdoors. You're by the water. You're not going to get COVID at the beach, by and large. And in the East, in the North, especially in the, uh, you know, the corridor, the East Coast corridor, you know, people are writing death Santis and, and look at these Florida, the hashtag Florida morons. And basically saying, you know, they're going to come to Massachusetts and kill us with their COVID. It was ridiculous. And of course, that gets the people in Florida and Texas and, and Alabama and Idaho get their backs up and they, you know, they're like, fuck you. You know, we're not going to wear a mask. Um, it just becomes, so become, and they start to view people in the East as virtue signaling by wearing masks and, and, and staying indoors. And, and, and in terms of the numbers, you know, they're probably right. They're probably right. But Gina Raimondo, I mean, I just want kept the schools open, uh, in Rhode Island, I guess, against a lot of opposition. but Yeah, that's why she should be the vice presidential candidate in 2024, but I know it won't happen. Yeah. She's the most I competent. She's, she is so competent. I agree. Yeah, I agree. You I know, agree I knew her back. Maybe, when she, she, was maybe, she, maybe she should be the uh, presidential candidate. I knew her when she was back in uh, in Rhode Island uh, as, as early in her time at governor. And, and, you know, I marveled at the way she was one of the very few governors. Or she wasn't even governor then. She was. Uh, Treasury Secretary, I think. Anyway, she, she, you know, she's one of the very few public officials who got the unions and the cities together and try and solve their pension problems, which were almost as bad as Illinois at the time, and now they're not. I mean, she's she's just super competent, and yeah, but but she's a rare Democrat who who didn't didn't who decided that she would she would learn the studies herself, and she would pay attention, and she, she knew how to manage risk and think about, you know, what is more harmful for children, COVID 
or staying out of school. And God bless her. I mean, I wish I wish everybody had been like that, but they but they weren't. I mean, all this stuff about, you know, we're following the science. It's bullshit. There wasn't any science. So let's sorry about my language. I just by the way, it's fun to swear on podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're just like Mad Libs. It always turns out better when you do. Exactly. So let's change the subject a little bit because you spent a lot of time um, early on talking about the supply chain problems for things, you know, PPE, all all the equipment. Uh, And do you think we need, uh, you know, some sort of a chips act for medical supplies? I think we need sort of a chips act for everything, although we can't afford it. Um, You know, if you're like me and you spent your life in the world of capitalism, mostly applauding it, not entirely applauding it, basically accepting it, I came to the view that our willingness to outsource everything, and I mean everything, left us flat-footed when it came to the pandemic. Because except for uh, 3Ms and 95s, um, uh, we had nothing. We had no masks. We had no gowns. We had no the slippers they put on their feet. We had nothing. We had no we had no nitrile gloves, which are hugely important. Uh, everything had been outsourced, and you know my argument. You know, you know America. We all know Americans love low cost, and we all know that American CEOs love to keep things perfectly happy to have China make things for one tenth of the price that it costs if there's a U.S. labor. I understand all of that, but you know if you look at a comp- a country like Germany, they do a much better job of balancing their national needs with with trade, with the need for, you know, efficient supply chains. And we don't do that. We're, we're, we, we go so all in on efficient supply chains that we have no resilience. Now, I don't really know entirely how to get that resilience. I will totally admit that. But I do feel like we should have the capability um, to gin up if we have to, or to have you know, some companies that were paying to keep a certain number of people doing this stuff. I'll tell you a really good example that really hit me hard. There was a company, there's a company in Miami called Demitech, and they, they primarily make uh, surgical supplies. Um, and it's a family run company. It's not, it's not publicly created. And when the pandemic arrived, they decided that they wanted to do something for the country. So they went out and they bought machines to make masks and they rented out a factory, a big factory, and they hired like 200 people, 250 people. They taught them how to use the machines and they started churning out masks, mostly surgical masks. And, you know, there was a great need for them. They were selling them like crazy. They're selling them mostly to the VA, but, but other people as well. And then when the mask shortage started to abate and China decided that they wanted to get their market share back, China dropped everything to like started charging a penny for masks. You know, they really dropped the price. And all of Demitech's customers, you know, race back to China. And the guy at Demitech, I mean, obviously he feels betrayed and pissed and all of that. He, the most interesting thing he said to me was, you know, we had this expertise here in this in this factory we had expertise we had people who knew how to do this and now they're gone and if we have another pandemic we're all gonna have to start all over again and does that really make any sense 
Although like, it's I'm kind of a complicated story though, because they were able to ramp up and start making masks without having done it in the past, right? They were. So that's a little they weird. They were, but nitro, yes. Surgical masks aren't that hard, but, but nitro gloves are very difficult to make. Mm -hmm. um, and N95s obviously are extremely difficult to make, which is why 3M is the only game in town. No, so, so that wasn't, they, they only did Not the best example, but, but you know. And then, then you had the shortage of semiconductor chips. Uh, I mean, not talking about Intel type chips. We're talking about, you know, just the basic semiconductor chips that you put in cars, that you put in all sorts of small digital devices. Then, then there's a shortage of that. And then, you know, you have all these supply chain issues. And, and it's almost as if the PPE was the, was the uh, canary in the coal mine. Um, and I, to me, just said, we need to be more, we need to be more resilient. We just can't afford to be at the mercy of the Chinese or, or primarily the Chinese who can see now what happens when there's a shortage, that they're in control. Right. Right. Well, it's kind of a it's a cost benefit question, which <laughs> we're, I don't know if anybody's kind of studied, you know, that's the type of thing. A, a commission, if it was a good commission, could study. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you know, one of the points I try to we try to make in the book is that we've had this 40, 50 year transition in ca of capitalism uh, where maximizing shareholder value becomes the primary value, if not the, the only value at many companies and, and uh, you know, uh, globalization and, and the rise of private equity is all, are all sort of a, a subset of that. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> is it really healthy for our system to be built so resolutely around shareholder value? Well, I would think if you wanted to have this capacity at the ready, the government would have to pay for it. It might be it might be a good thing to do, but I don't think you could expect the companies to keep keep this keep this capacity or keep a stockpile without, you know, with the possibility it might be needed in twenty five years. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go with that. Yeah. That's fine. Sure. <laughs> but I would like for the companies to at least go along with it and not fight it and uh, um, care about our national security. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that a little bit as you were talking about it. And I know it's it's you know beyond the scope of your book on how we would actually go about doing this. I mean, we've started to by trying to decouple as the with the word of the word of the year. Uh, but if you compare it to a country like Germany, uh, they have not, for the most part, not had to worry about any defense spending to their to their detriment. And we focus more on resiliency there, maybe mm -hmm. not enough, but but to the expense of other things too. So we're all kind of out of whack. Now, yeah, that's a great, great point, which I hadn't thought of until this very second. Yeah, I totally, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. And another thing, another point you make, and actually I'd like, like you to explain it a little better because I'm not sure I quite understand it. Is, I mean, uh, is you're critical of private equity. Yeah, I sure am. And uh, I hate private equity. <laughs> okay, well, explain. <laughs> well, I think their main role in our society is to rape and pillage companies. Well, I why think. why should the incentives of private equity be, well, maybe they are, maybe I just don't understand it. Are they any different than the incentives of any other company? Well, um, uh, well the main reason is um, that they have 
The main reason is that their their duty is not to the companies they acquire, but to their to the investors who have given them money. Now you can say, well, what's different than that than a public company? But the answer is there's a lot of difference because a public company's investors are are uh, you know amorphous and and uh, you're not you know Yale University isn't going to call up you know Apple and say, well, Carl Icahn might, but uh, they. Here's how private equity works. What we focused on was nursing homes. And you can't think of a of an industry that is less amenable to be taken over by private equity. You know, private equity buys a nursing home chain. So in order to buy the chain, they take on debt. Who carries the debt? Not the private equity firm, the nursing home chain. So suddenly the nursing home chain has expenses that it never had before. So then the private equity firm sells the building and the land to real estate investment trust. So now the nursing home chain has rent to pay, millions and millions of dollars in rent to pay that it never had before. So how is it going to stay solvent? Well, they cut back staff. They cut back resources. They, you know, uh, they do these. Basically, the, the private equity firm is trying to suck money out of there that they can divert to their investors, that they can send to their investors. And they don't give a hoot what happens, frankly, to the people who are supposed to be their customers. That's my view. So I agree 100% with everything you've just said, having had to recently deal with nursing homes and everything that's happening there. It's just a disaster. But does it make a difference to you whether they're acquiring a distressed uh, company or institution? where the alternative might be that it disappears? Um, yes, it does. And I, first of all, I basic view is that I don't think healthcare, you may disagree with this, but I don't think healthcare is a particularly appropriate industry uh, to be, you know, part of the capitalist system, you know. So I think hospitals and private equity, hospitals and nursing homes are sort of a thing apart, but it's totally, true. If, yeah. if, we, if there's a wrong way to do something in healthcare, we'll do it that way. If private equity, if private equity buys a distressed company and puts in expertise and help and puts people on the board and helps build it so that they can then go public in three or four years and they're healthier and happier and yada yada yada, I don't have any problem with that. The problem is that doesn't happen that often very often not anymore. In the beginning of private equity, it happened all the time, but now you know all the big. It's just the targets are smaller and smaller. And, you know, do you really want private equity buying autism practices? That's what they're doing. Uh, but so let me, this obviously, well, you know, maybe because I don't quite understand how the whole system works. But if it was a competitive system and, for example, and somebody and private equity firm bought, I mean, not not everybody in a nursing home is some 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 people probably you know have other have other people you know family et cetera looking out for their welfare so so they're they're in a nursing home it's taken over by private equity or so and the service service goes down you know their family members should be able to move them someplace else to another to an to another home where that's not happening why that why doesn't that happen why does why why is that why is that wrong why is what i'm saying wrong well i think once you get a 75 76 77 year old person into a nursing home it's pretty damn hard to move them um and you know there are really good ones but they're also very expensive and so your finance your insurance company or medicare or whatever might might have limits on how much they're going to pay uh, it's just what you just said sounds 
plausible, but it doesn't really happen that way. It's also hard to find spaces and so on. Yeah, as as anybody who's has had a person in an assisted living facility knows. Yeah, for sure. Okay. The um, let me let me talk a little bit before we end on on uh, and this is really getting it's a little bit more on the theme of what we were talking about earlier. But you know, for example, we've had we had um, uh, Jay Bhattacharya on this podcast I think twice over the last couple of years, and. And so there obviously was was a you know there was a group of of people um, who had a different idea and and they they really were marginalized by the by the you know by the public health establishment in the, you know kind of a <laughs> a not good way and there are court cases about it now but you know <sighs> it was bad it was bad it was yeah. bad Martin Kuldorf Martin Kuldorf who's Jay's partner in crime you know he was a big shot epidemiologist at Harvard University who did work that the CDC found enormously valuable in terms of testing vaccines. And yet, once he became a dissident, you know, Fauci and Francis Collins, his boss, started describing him as a fringe epidemiologist, which is ridiculous. And the thing that Jay says and Martin says also is, you know, it's fine. You disagree with us. Fine. Well, let's sit down and talk. Let's look at the studies. Let's not, you know, have this sort of stupid cancel culture in science. It's ridiculous. And he's totally right. And by the way, you know, in the end, they were a lot more correct about what was happening and how to what to do about it than than the establishment, which I think wound up with a lot of egg on their face. So so do you I mean, I think in general, the the public health establishment in this country has taken a Big hit. Huge. Big hit, you know, reputationally in terms of, you know, as a result of what they did during the pandemic. And I don't, do you see a way, do you see? Yeah, I do. All right. <laughs> to regain, for them to regain some credibility or? I think the way to regain credibility is to show some humility and to say forthrightly, we didn't have all the answers. We made mistakes. Um and we're sorry. And I think that during the pandemic itself, if they had been more willing to say, look, we're not 100% sure if masks are going to help us, but we've used them in other pandemics and we're going to try it. And then and then we're going to measure it. And then we're going to tell you what the results of those measurements are. We're going to be honest with you. and We're going to be transparent with you. It would have it would have made such a difference. One of Jay's big points, as you guys probably know, is about how when the vaccine became available in Sweden, Practically the entire country got vaccinated. And he, he, he says, well, why is that? Well, the answer and to him is because people trusted their government because their government had been honest with them. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, you know, we know we don't have time to get into this, you know, in terms of the vaccine itself. You know, the big, big, big mistake public health made with the vaccine was overselling it. It wasn't that it didn't work. It's that it didn't wasn't the silver bullet that it was initially described to be. And then when it turned out that it didn't stop transmission, you know, and that some people did die who'd been vaccinated and young men did get myocarditis sometimes. If they had acknowledged all of that up front and said, this is, you know, no vaccine is perfect. The polio vaccine wasn't perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect vaccine. There are sometimes there are side effects. 
it affects different people different ways. And by and large, it will help you and it will try to will will help you stay alive. If they had simply said that, it would have made such a difference, I think. Maybe not to Bobby Kennedy Jr., but to most people. Well, let me, let me actually, unless Scott has other things, let me talk about Well, actually, just before you move on from the humility point, you talked with a lot of people writing this book. Did you find any evidence that even when people would talk to you privately, that they were willing to think that way? Or was it always defensive? It was always defensive. It was absolutely. I mean, we talked to Fauci and and others. And uh, no, we never, it was, it was, everybody was really, uh, really mired in their position and they weren't going to budge. And um, I don't know if they ever will, but they certainly haven't. So, but this is a, it's a question that is basically about your, your industry, the media. <laughs> Nolo contendere. <Right. laughs> I, I don't, I don't really like, would have been helpful pissing pissing on on my industry but um you know i think that the problem for the press it's tricky it's tricky if you're the press because on the one hand you're trying to encourage people to do things that science the scientists are telling them to do you're uncritically trying to pass that information along and so what they didn't do was they didn't bring to the table the skepticism that's supposed to be part and parcel of a journalist's makeup and, you know, if the journalists had been more willing to say, hey, what does the science really say about school closings? Hey, are lockdowns really working? You know, if they'd been willing to say that, look into that, it would have been, I think, a very important, helpful thing. But they really, they just didn't. And, and then so you wound up having, you know, this again, turning into a divide between, you know, the, the Fox-type press, the conservative press, the mainstream media, which, you know, is mostly liberal. We all know that. Okay. Well, this has been this has been great. We appreciate your taking taking the time to do this. And uh wish you wish you the best of luck with the book. I hope thank I, you. I thank hope you. it's a great, it's a great book. More people read it. And <laughs> give us 20 years. We'll do fine. <laughs> I hope. Look forward to seeing a review of it in the New York Times or the Washington Post. So do I. Yeah. So do I. Thank, Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate your time and the, and your good questions. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye.